Welcome to Patriots of the Core. I'm Thad Forrester. This podcast exists because of my little brother, Mark Forrester. While he was serving as a full-time missionary in California, our nation was attacked on 9-11. He felt the calling then to complete his service to God, with his next mission being to serve his country. He knew God wanted him to help control the terrorist population. On September 29, 2010, he was killed in action on his first deployment. From his death notification to our family, to the dignified transfer ceremony at Dover, to his viewing, funeral, and subsequent memorials, I was amazed at the new world of heroes and warriors we met. These men and women have become close to our family and been huge supports. But they also stood out because of their willingness to voluntarily fight evil. They believed in freedom and liberty. Because of their actions, I started this podcast to interview great Americans who serve their country and communities. Thank you for tuning in. Steve Fuller, welcome to Patriot to the Core. Thank you so much for having me. And welcome to Huntsville. Thank you, sir. It's been a long time. What's the pin on your uh, your Uh, little pin? FBI. Okay. Well, what about since we're in Huntsville now and it's been 30 years, what's your memory or memories of Huntsville? Uh, My memories of Huntsville was a lot smaller. It was nowhere near as uh, built up or as, um, I don't know if modern is the right word, uh, but it it certainly is a lot busier and a lot more of a metropolitan feel to it now than it had, again, 30 years ago when I was here last. Well, do you think your your situational awareness will be a little better this time? (laughs) You want to tell that story? Well, I was hoping not to, but no, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, my last time in uh, Huntsville, I was here, uh, the Combined Logistics Officers Advanced Corps. I had just transitioned out of the infantry into uh, the Ordnance Corps with the Army. And I went out one night uh, with a friend of mine, and we were going to go, I think we were going to go to a club, but we stopped at uh, the old Books A Million that had just recently had a, a fire. And uh, we'd stopped at the ATM, grabbed a couple, you know, couple 20s each, because that was big money back then, and uh, rolled in, looked at the books, because they were having a fire sale, and we thought we'd get some books. And... Uh, and By the way, this is a 92, 93? Yeah, right around there. Yeah. You know, I I'd, I'd n- never used an ATM in 93. Really? I never <laughs> used one until about 97. Okay. Yeah. It was very, very uh, you know, avant-garde <laughs> stuff yeah. back then. Yeah, very cutting edge. <laughs> and um, uh, as we walked out, um, a 15-year-old kid, and it turns out that that place was right next to some Section 8 housing. And kind of, I found out afterwards a rather bad part of town. Had no clue at the time, of course. And he came up and stuck a gun in my ribs and uh, demanded my wallet. And as I told you uh, previously, I I had paid my way through my undergraduate and part of my high school education because I went to a a rather expensive college prep school. And I had to pay it myself because I was out on my own by 16. And I did that by teaching karate. So by this point in my life, I've got my black belt. I I know I can take this gun away from this kid and beat him to death with it. but then I look behind him, there's seven or eight more kids standing back there, obviously with him. They're all watching the robbery. And it occurs to me, how many more guns are in that crowd? How many knives? How many of these people am I going to have to hurt badly to get through this and still get shot, possibly? Mm-hmm. All right, so he's, he's got the gun in your ribs, mm-hmm. yeah. and your, your friend is where? I'm uh, with my buddy. My uh, Ford Explorer is between us, and he's on the passenger side. So he's not... A, really understanding what's going on. Is he already inside? No, no, no. He had just been approaching the car. So he was going around to get in the passenger side. I was going to drive. So he knows that I'm, I've been accosted by somebody, but he doesn't know really what's going on. There's no shouting or screaming. He just sees this conversation because he can't see the gun, sees me talking to the guy. And the guy's demanding my wallet. And so I I start telling him, I'm not giving you my wallet because the credit cards won't do any good. I'll make a phone call. They'll all be dead. You know, I got to go to the 
get a new driver's license, and it's a big pain in my butt. I'll just give you the cash. And he's like, don't give me the wallet. And I said, I'll give you the cash. And then he said, okay, fine, give me the cash. So I give him the cash. He takes off back around the back into my car, and he goes around the other side. And he goes to rob my buddy. And so now I know that there's a gun in the back of my car. I'd gone to the range that day and had left the gun in the car. just hadn't taken it out. It wasn't at the time I didn't carry a firearm on a regular basis. I had a concealed carry permit in Georgia, but I didn't have one in Alabama. I couldn't tell you if it was legal for me to carry it illegal or um, concealed in Alabama. Probably was. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I, I recovered the gun, and now I'm leaning across the back seat, and I've got the factory tinted windows so he can't see what's going on i'm probably half the distance i am from you between my muzzle and his forehead leaning across my back seat and i've taken the slack out of the trigger i'm I'm staring through the sights of this kid and understand at this point i've come back from the gulf war my buddy that he's robbing is a somalia veteran he'd just come back from somalia and i'm thinking to myself i have this moment of clarity i'm like i I don't want to kill this kid over 40 dollars. i just don't i don't want i can I think I'm legally, in hindsight, I know I was legally in the clear. But at the time, I just didn't want to do it. And so he gets my buddy's money, he takes off running with his little pack of buddies, and they all take off. And then my buddy sees me, and he just goes bananas on me. He gets really upset. He's like, why didn't you smoke that guy? And then we had a philosophical debate on the ethics of killing a 15-year-old kid over mm-hmm. you know, what amounted to $80. And uh, at the end of the day, we just said, we're not going to the club, we'll just head home. <laughs> it kind of ruined the vibe for the whole evening. <laughs> uh, but I subsequently wrote uh, an article. I wrote a, quite a few articles for gun magazines uh, in the early part of the, the, the 20s, I guess, the early part of the century. And I wrote an article about that, about situational awareness. Because mm-hmm. every article I'd ever read about situational awareness was people telling about how situationally aware they were and how people couldn't sneak up on them and how they were always in condition yellow and you know, or red. They're always action guys. And I'm like, yeah. well... Mm-hmm. Let me tell you my story because I wasn't, and this is what happened. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, that kid could have—he could have killed me. He could have pulled that trigger because I wasn't situationally aware. I wasn't paying attention to my surroundings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will tell you, since then, other incidences similar to that have evolved in my presence, and none of them have gotten to that point since then um, because I learned my lesson that night, and I've never been caught since then. I'm not saying I can't be caught. But I am saying that I am paying a whole lot more attention. Yeah. I've heard you tell that story. Well, first of all, you told me on the phone mm-hmm. recently. And then I heard you tell it on American Warrior Society with Rich Brown. So, by the way, Rich, I hope you're listening to your good buddy, Dr. T.C. Fuller. But what were some things that you learned from that? And then and then, what were some of the debates that you and your buddy had after Okay. The kids left. Uh, let me start by saying I agree with you. You know, Rich is a heck of a good guy. I like him a lot. Uh, he just published his memoirs this week. I don't know if you knew that. No, I didn't yeah, know that. On, on uh, violence and ver- veritals. Veritals? I can't ever pronounce that word. Uh, confessions of a, uh, God, what was it? Confessions of a savage psalm. Okay. Uh, it's really worthwhile. I got to read it in sort of its beta version. Maybe he can come back on the show. He, he's been on yeah. a podcast a few years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'll link to his episode oh, in this one. He'd love that. Um, I don't want to speak for Rich, but I think he'd love that. So your question is, what was the debate between my friend and I after the fact, and what did I learn in that incident, if I heard you correctly? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. So what I learned in that incident is, well, you know, pay attention. I mean, really, honest to God, pay attention. You can boil down all the debates and the arguments and the, the you know, blogs and the articles and what have you about situational awareness and condition yellow, condition red, you know, Colonel Cooper's conditions. 
to the simple fact that you got to pay attention. And I wasn't. I was chit-chatting with my buddy, mentally checked out. You know, it wasn't a combat zone in my head. Turns out it was, just a different type of combat zone. Uh, and I just wasn't paying attention. Now, years later, I'm walking along with my then six-year-old daughter. Eight-year-old daughter, I guess, maybe. And uh, paying attention. We're just, we're out. She and I had walked to dinner. Her mom was off working. I was out of town. And so we had walked a couple of blocks to dinner up in Vermont, where I lived and was assigned for a while. And we left the restaurant. And we're walking through a parking lot, you know, heading to home. Just the two of us chatting away, me and my little girl. Is it dark? Oh, yeah, it's nighttime. We just finished dinner. It's probably 8, 9 o'clock. And I see a guy come out of, we're walking through a parking lot of a liquor store. Now, this is suburban Vermont, right outside of Burlington. And so this is not a rough neighborhood. This is not a, you know. It's Ben and Jerry's country. Ben and Jerry's country. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, so you don't, it's not the kind of place where you see half a dozen homeless guys drinking out of paper bags, right? It's just a liquor store on a corner. But I see this guy come out and he looks like he might be having trouble walking. He looks like he might have been into, into his cups a bit, if you will. And so I'm paying attention to him. I'm still watching the rest of the parking lot, but I'm paying attention. And he gets in his car and we're walking in such a way that we're not walking right across the back of his trunk, but we're walking close to another set of parking spaces that are across from the set that he's in. And he jumps in, never looks, slams it in reverse, stomps the gas. Well, when I see him put it in reverse and not look, I stop my little girl, put my hand on her and pull her back. And he hits the gas so hard that he shoots across in front of us to where we would have been walking had we not stopped. And he runs his car up onto the trunk of the car that's parked right behind us. So had we not been stopped, had I not been paying attention, it wouldn't have been a, a robbery at gunpoint. It would have been death by vehicle, mm-hmm. or, you know, misadventure. And then, to make matters worse, he throws it back into gear, off he goes. Because everybody's got a four-wheel drive or an all-wheel drive, so his front tire's caught. Well, now I'm mad. It's not, not that you almost got me. At the time, I was a serving FBI agent. I get that. You know, that's sort of the ante of the game I'm in. But you almost got my little girl. Now I'm pissed. <laughs> so I get his plate as he's taken off, and I get on the phone. <clears throat> well, while I'm standing there, two people walk up to me. One of them is a Canadian art or a car theft detective who just happened to be in Burlington, 40 <laughs> miles from the border, 30 miles from the border. I saw the whole thing. I said, great, stand right here. The other one's a woman, and she's a dispatcher from another local jurisdiction. Oh, <laughs> right, great, you stand over there. I call the local PD. They send somebody over. Of course, he's a friend of mine because there's like five cops in Vermont. We all know each other. <laughs> and uh, I tell him, look, this is the plate. This is the guy's description. This is where he went because I was paying attention. Right, So I got a good look at him. I got a good look at the car. I got a good look at the plate. Got it all. And I had written it down, obviously, as soon as I got it. So, no problem. They blow a unit out there. And I, he says, well, you want to come to the PD and give a statement? I was like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, we, we go to the PD. Well, by the time this guy gets home, there's a cruiser waiting in his driveway for him. So, he pulls in, cruiser, yanks him out, gives him a DUI test, drunk as a skunk, buckles him up, drags him down to the PD. So, I'm there doing my, you know, report and I'm in sort of the secured area when they bring him in. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, now I've got an ethical dilemma. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. And so I ended up having a very direct pointed conversation with him while he was chained to the wall. I said, you know, really. The essence of it was the only reason I'm not beating you to death with my shoes right now is because of my respect for the law and these police officers here. Because if there wasn't a law, I'd be beating you to death right now yeah. for what you just did. So that's an example of how what I learned that night 
paid off later. Right? I learned pay attention. Just pay attention. <clears throat> there have been occasions where um, I'm in a movie theater, and I was in a movie theater in Virginia one time, and the alarm went off, fire alarm went off. No smoke, no fire, no nothing. I get up and walk out. You know, one of the front exits by the down by the screen. Yeah. And the date I was with, she's like, what are you doing? So we're leaving. She's like, well, there's nothing going on. Everybody else in the theater not moving. I said, I don't care. I said, we're leaving. We're going. Come on. Let's go. We walk out. We go around front. Turns out it was a fake alarm. All right. We'll go back. Give them my ticket subs. In we go. Nobody's moved from the whole time. I'm like, she's like, oh, you're so paranoid. Said, Maybe. And then a couple years later, the Colorado shooting takes place. So am I? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, Aurora, wasn't it? It sure was. Yeah. All kinds of, and they want to say that they found five men dead after the fact that were laying on top of their girls, friends, or wives, and that had you know grabbed them and jumped on them and, and covered them with their bodies and took mm. rounds as a result. Mm. Saved the women, but they died. And I applaud them for their heroism. Heroism, but I'd rather have not have been there. Mm-hmm. You know, I tell people all the time the best way to win a gunfight is to not be present when it happens. Mm. Yeah. Well, speaking of situational awareness, what are the what are some of the biggest distractors and mistakes that you see now just when you go out in public uh, every day? We're just the phone is the first one. I mean, people's phones like it's like they've got eyeball magnets on them, right? You get a phone, your face goes right into that phone. Yeah. I mean, if I was a crook these days, that's easy. It. It's easy. Easy. Especially if you're okay with bocking people on the head. Have right. you seen the? There's, I'm sure there's a lot of videos, but one of the videos of a guy robbing everybody on a train or a bus. <laughs> no, I haven't seen. But this. nobody knows he's coming because they're all standing there like this, looking hmm. at their phones, and he's one by one robbing them. And this one dude finally looks up. It, it's just so <laughs> bizarre. But just distraction in general. I have a friend that does a lot of uh, distracted driving research. He's a PhD down in Florida. He's done a career on it, and uh, he'll tell you all the time about, you know, your phone. He's just throwing your trunk when you get in the car. He says, just don't answer it. Don't, mm-hmm. don't talk to it. Don't have it at all. He says, it'll kill you, or it'll kill someone else. And it's true. I ride a Harley. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've almost been nailed on that bike mm-hmm. by people reading their phones. Oh, yeah. And changing lanes. <laughs> Most of the people listening probably live in middle class or better neighborhood. So we're here at Troy's Our Town Podcast Studio. Safe area seems. I live in a safe area. I live in a cul-de-sac. But how often do you see, do criminals, do they hang out and wait for the garage door to go up? Or I'm talking about in, in, in nicer areas. Are they waiting until somebody pulls in and they're sitting in their car because they're still on the phone? They're not paying attention. I, I catch myself in the mornings when I do go to work, which is not too often. I'll go. I'll sit in my garage for a minute because I'm trying to queue up a podcast mm-hmm. <laughs> to get going instead of doing it in the house. And I keep thinking to myself, "Wait a minute! I'm sitting here. I can't see anything else. And the other garage door may still be open that goes into the house." Did you see that, or do you see that happening a lot? That type of crime. I have, well, no, there are a couple of things I would say about that. One is, I was a Fed, so I worked federal crimes. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. So it didn't see a lot of the you know pushing robberies, strong arm robberies. Carjacking is a federal crime. So if you carjack someone, you can get jammed up federally. But since 9-11, we've really moved away. Keep in mind, I've been out of the Bureau for six years. So take this for what it's worth. Things may have changed since I left. Um, But we worked a lot of those things. Matter of fact, we worked carjacking so hard that it died out largely around the country. It just wasn't a thing for a long time. Um, 
so my firsthand experience with what you described is not huge. I've seen a lot of it on John Korea's channel, mm-hmm. uh, active self-prevention yeah. or self-protection, which is, I think those tend to be coming out of third world countries, particularly Brazil, right. where a lot of people have cameras and a lot of people are just victims of these push-in robberies or South Africa, where you have people storming the house. Uh, I haven't seen it, but why take that chance? Right? I mean, mm-hmm. why set yourself up for that? You know, these are called transitional spaces, is I think what John calls them. You know, areas where you're you're moving through briefly. But this is an easy place to victimize you. Like you said, I come in the garage. If people want to target me, they come in the garage right behind me. Now they're through my garage door. My internal door may well be unlocked. I know mine is in my house until nighttime when I lock it. Yeah. Um, so now they've, in essence, breached your perimeter. You know, people like me will tell you, layer your defenses, right? Have these layers. Yeah. And now they've gone through a lot of those layers if they're in your home. Um, but, you know, one of the, some of the layers that, that I consider part of my defensive plan that you gentlemen have as well is I live in a safe state. You know, I live in a safe town in that safe, safe state. And I live in a safe community in that safe state, in that safe town. And I live at the back of a cul-de-sac. And I have cameras. And I have a dog. And I have... You probably have good lighting, too. I have outstanding lighting. <laughs> I have outstanding lighting. And then when you move on my perimeter, it gets better. Right? I have cameras. I have thorn bushes under my windows. So, yeah, mm. can, can you get through all of this stuff? Sure. But I don't take the attitude that I need to be in the Maginot line, right? I don't have to be invulnerable. Uh-huh. I just have to be tougher than the guy next door, which is, you know, bummer for him. He's got all the same opportunities that I do to defend his house. If he doesn't take advantage of them, I will feel bad for him and I will help him if I can. But my first priority is me and mine. And I know that sounds uh, rather egocentric. I don't mean it to. I don't mean to be callous. But my first priority is me and mine. And so that's why I layer things the way I do. And part of those layers are, to your point, thinking about, okay, I'm coming home. Pay attention. What's going on around my house? Is everything normal? You know, watch for that normalcy bias. But look for things that are out of yeah. the norm. You know, are there five kids that I don't recognize hanging out across the street from my house? Maybe. If there are, well, maybe I do a lap around the cul-de-sac park somewhere else and walk up. I don't know. Maybe I just leave, right? I mean, I don't often stop at 7-Elevens or stop and robs, but when I do, I'll pull up, park a little ways away and watch through the front windows, right? Take a look. A friend of mine walked in when he was a local officer before he became an FBI agent, walked in on, or didn't walk in, walked into a 7-Eleven or some store like that and was buying, you know, bread or Gatorade or whatever it was after shift and he was walking back up and some guy was robbing that place. The story he told me, he's now he's, he's passed away, so he can't confirm or deny this. And this was 20 something years ago. He told me this, but he, the story as he related to me was there ended up being a shooting at the counter and the bad guy survived. And the bad guy was eventually tried for armed robbery, which of course he completely denied. And so my buddy ends up on the stand and he tells the story, you know, well, what are your version of the events of the night in question? The prosecutor asked well, you know, I was making my purchases, I was walking to the front of the store, I noticed the defendant, or in this case, the, uh, you know, that guy over there. And uh, so I divested myself of my intended purchases, I drew my weapon, moved to a position of cover and concealment, announced my office, demanded that he surrender. He turned in what I interpreted to be an aggressive fashion. I fired my weapon three times, striking him twice. He fell to the ground, I moved forward, handcuffed him, administered first aid, called for back. Okay. So things keep going and they put the guy up on the stand and they say, okay, Mr. Criminal, 
what your event you know, version of it. And he says, well, it, it happened pretty much like he said, only all I heard was, guess who, motherfucker? And I was shot. <laughs> so, no idea if that's a true story or just a really funny one he told over the bar. But Guess who? <laughs> um, so, uh, but it was in Kentucky, so you, know, you kind of have to take that one. <laughs> um, but again, why put yourself in a position like that, right? Observe what's going on. Pay attention. Take a look. And don't just you know, get into your head and thinking about what's going on, the fight you had with your wife yesterday and your kids are being a pain or you know, whatever else is happening in your life. Let's pay attention. Let's get through this. And relax when you get home. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, and I don't, I don't advocate going through life with a hand on your gun. You know, and your plate carrier on all the time, and you know, watching a moving three to five second buddy rushes to get to the target. You know, it's that's, that's ridiculous. You can't live your life like that. But what you can do is live your life where you're looking around and you're paying attention to people and you're seeing what's going on. And if you see something that looks a little hinky, walk away. Yep. Just walk away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, stay out of Walmart after 10 p.m. <laughs> I'm always amazed, like my wife, like when it comes to driving, I pay attention to every, I'm, I'm paying attention to driving, but I'm paying attention to every car that passes, every car that wants to come, you know, into the right of way. And then my wife, or like somebody walking, and, and my wife, I'll be like, hey, did you see that? No, I didn't, I didn't see anything. <laughs> like she's only watching like the road. I'm like. I think you need to be more aware. You're going to prevent more accidents if you can. You can like yeah, anticipate yeah. something. It's true. Or or whatever. That's a somebody you know that you haven't seen in 20 years. Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> Phil or something, right? I'm gonna pull over. Like she doesn't seem to like to notice any of that. Yeah, I I never really noticed that about my first wife, um, but my second wife is an FBI agent. Okay. And uh, I should I should just say my wife is an FBI agent. <laughs> <laughs> my last wife is an FBI agent. <laughs> Uh, and, but she is switched on all the time. Yeah. So she'll see stuff that, that I miss and, uh, she pays a lot more attention. I pay pretty good attention, but she pays, she's just spot on stuff. She's like, you see that? Yes. <laughs> and what's really funny is, is sometimes that she'll just, cause we're playing off the same playbook, right? We both have the same training. We have the same experience. So she'll look at me and I'll go, Oh, you know, I saw it. Okay. <laughs> and you know, it's, it, it's nice to be in that position where you're married to someone who's paranoias match your own. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when I say things like, Hey, the shotgun is over there next to the bed. Okay. You know, we, we heard a noise in our house one night and my attitude is pretty much, if you come in my house, the first floor is yours. You can have anything on the first floor. It's all insured. Back a truck up, haul it all out of the house. I don't care. You come up the stairs. Now you're in a free fire zone because this is where the things I value are hanging out. And it's my, my children and my wife. Okay. The dog, she fluctuates. If she's upstairs, she, you know, okay, <laughs> but whatever. Um, but we heard a noise. And so the, the, the game plan for us is hard in the one room. Somebody goes to the top of the stairs, make sure that that's, that's clear, get the kids in our room. And then we just fall back, call the police and hang out. So we start doing that. And um, I end up grabbing the shotgun and heading down the hallway. And after it's over... She looks at me and goes, why the hell did you get the shotgun? <laughs> <laughs> She's like, why didn't I get the shotgun? I was like, oh, because I was going to the top. She's like, no, we need another shotgun. <laughs> I'm like, how about an M4? <laughs> She's like, okay. So it's nice to have that, you know, when your partner is on your Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because then, oh, it's, yeah. then it's less baggage. Because in your situation you just described, it's all on you. Yeah. 
You know, it's my guess is the word is out. You don't mess with the Fuller. <laughs> yeah, yeah. House in the town you live in. Well, the nice thing is, you know, most of my neighbors don't know. You know, the ones that have been there five or six years, they know. Yeah. But to them, we're when you're an FBI agent, and I'm sure this is true of anybody that's out there that that does things. You know, um, if you're an ATF agent, or if you're a combat controller, uh, if you are, you know, in the Ranger Regiment. You become a stereotype. I mean, people find out, oh, you're an ATF agent? Bing. You're just a, you're, you're, you don't mow, that ATF agent doesn't mow his lawn, right? <laughs> you're that guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we try very hard not to be those stereotypes. And she doesn't, you know, make a big deal about the fact that she's an agent. And she's also an attorney, so she usually tells people just, I'm an attorney. Um, so we try to keep that as under wraps as possible. And also I her doing podcasts, writing books, what have you. So my neighbors do know. Hey, if things go high and right, TC's house is where we're going. Right. And I'm, I'm thinking, better, okay, but... You, you don't keep, have enough food for everybody. Right. You, you better keep your hands where I can see them. You got you the know? ammo, just not, not the food. Yeah, I mean, I just... And then, you know, again, that's that's some of the things in the, to, to your second part of your original conversation. The ethical conversation I had with my buddy after that first night. These are things that kind of come up is, okay, what is your ethical obligation Mm-hmm. To the yeah. people in your circles, right? Well, and and of course, there's the close circle of your family. That obligation is pretty extreme. But how far out does that radiate? And and your neighbors, how far does that? How far down that hole do you go with your neighbors? You know, your neighbors from two blocks away. Your and these are conversation questions. I think that you need to have answered before that moment. <laughs> let's talk about your book. Okay, let's do so, it. So, uh, painting over us. Let's see if I can show this on the camera, right there. So, this is a this is a really a great book on stories from a twenty year odyssey in the FBI. Thank you. I wanted to read it before I interviewed you, as you know. I just did. I, I wanted to really know about you, and this is and it's a new book. Your your short chapters, first of all, which <laughs> which I like. I appreciate it. It's just easier to read that way for me. Sure. Section it off, and you know you've got. A pretty good sense of humor in there. Thank you. I uh, think you do a good job of. Did you have anybody help help you write it? Jeff no, Ghostwriter, anything? That's you. That's all me. Okay, every word of it. Okay, so I take all the blame. Yeah, yeah. It's no <laughs> great job. Um, so, so let's talk about. I want to for basics. This is just, for me, especially maybe more so than anybody is. Like, who determines you know, or what is the role of FBI versus like sheriff versus uh, U.S. Marshals? Do you, will you just? Describe, explain the differences there. I, I can, but it's going to be perforce, uh, you know, a thumbnail sketch. It's going to be, um, it's not going to be super thorough just because this could take, that's right. I mean, you that's could do right. an entire yeah, yeah, college course fine. on this. <laughs> but what you have, in essence, is two levels of criminal justice system in the United States. And I'm not talking about the haves and the have nots. We could have that conversation all day long. Uh, but what I'm talking about is a federal versus state levels of a criminal justice system. So you have a federal Department of Justice, and then you might have in Alabama, for example, and I'm, I'm not hyper-familiar, but I would assume there's an Alabama Department of Justice or the equivalent. Mm-hmm. And under the federal Department of Justice falls most of your federal law enforcement agencies. Some of them fall under the Department of Homeland Security. But a bunch of us fall under DOJ, including the FBI. And DOJ is charged with the investigating of uh, violations of federal law. And those can be civil law uh, under the CFR, the Code of Federal Regulations. 
you know, if you're driving fuel tanker trucks between states and they're overloaded, that might be against uh, CFR. I don't know for sure. My dad was a trucker, so that's why I kind of default to that. Okay. Um, but that doesn't necessarily a criminal matter. That might be a civil matter where if you get caught, you get a fine. And then you have to pay the federal government some ridiculous amount of money. But then there's also the federal criminal codes. And under those, you have various investigative agencies, including the FBI. And under DOJ, the FBI is kind of king rat. I mean, there are other, a lot of other agencies, but the FBI is a big, big chunk of that. And they have, well, when I came in, I want to say we had about 395 federal violations, major federal violations that we investigated. And each one of those had sub-investigative things. Are you saying just within your district up in Vermont? or FBI, or? period. Okay. We used to get these little books. They were really kind of cool. They were, they were very little pamphlets. And they had all the different violations. And we had code numbers for all of them. So, for example, I worked a lot of crimes against children, as you'll read in the book. And those were 305 matters. So if I said, yeah, I've got a 305 case, other agents who were very familiar with the book would go, yeah. So if, you, if you're talking to local officers, and they'll do 10-code bingo. They'll, they'll all know the 10 codes. And there's a ton of 10 codes, right? So I'm 10-8, I'm 10-9, you know, 10-4. That's the one everybody knows, right? So I understand. We don't use 10 codes in the FBI. So you can tell me, oh, that's 10-27. I'll be like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> um, and the local officer goes, they'll laugh at you and point. Uh, but we would know the, the code books for the FBI. Oh, yeah, it's a 197. Oh, really? You know, and the new guy, when I was a new guy, I'm like, 197, flipping through the book trying to find um, and that number had expanded by the time I retired to somewhere in the 440s, 450s. I mean, it, it got bigger because Congress will pass more laws making more things illegal. Oh, yeah. And God knows they never take anything off the mm -hmm. illegal list. Um, and uh, then the portion of those will just pass to the FBI. This will now be the FBI will have lead jurisdiction in investigating these issues. So what that means is like terrorism. An act of terrorism or suspected terrorism the FBI will have be the lead agency, and that's by statute. So when the planes went down on 9-11, <laughs> one, it was clearly an act of terrorism, and it was clearly, therefore, an FBI issue. And I don't think we had a big fight with any other agencies over that because all the other agencies were like, nope, don't want that one. That thing is huge. Um, and nobody else really had the manpower to do it that we did. And that's not a slight on other agencies. It's just that we had 30,000 people running around. Yeah. Um, but sometimes, you know, a pipe bomb goes off in a mailbox. That's something that happens all over the place. Well, is that an act of terrorism because they want to shut down the Our Town podcast? Right? An attack on a journalist? I never get mail. Why? I wish I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> or is that just, you know, a couple of 18-year-old kids making pipe bombs and stuck yeah. in the mailboxes? Which brings me back to why I'm really glad we didn't have social media when I was a kid. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, at first, when that first goes off, the FBI may show up and say, well, we got to figure this out. Once they figure out, no, it's just two 18-year-old kids, we'll back off, and then the ATF might run with it, or the locals might run with it, or something like that. Okay. So the FBI is a part of DOJ, and there's a lot of other federal agencies, and we will investigate federal crimes. And the way that they get jurisdiction on those is typically through the uh, constitutional clauses that allow the FBI, or that allow the federal government to regulate interstate commerce. So how is there... FBI jurisdiction on kidnapping, for example. Seems like it would be a local crime. Well, what they did is they said, okay, we're just going to assume after the Lindbergh baby killing, is really when this happened, or kidnapping and killing, is we'll just assume that in a kidnapping, they've crossed the state line until we can prove otherwise. And therefore, we can bring the FBI 
in on it. And that, that's a bit of a stretch, maybe. But keep in mind that in the 1930s, I mean, even today, the average police department is about eight people in the United States. And when you think about, like, New York City, 40,000 cops, right? Chicago, 25 or 30,000 cops. I mean, those are some huge departments out yeah. there. Even at that, the average PD in this country is about eight. So there are PDs out there with two, three people. Well, they get a kidnapping. They, they may want to, with all their heart, want to work this kidnapping and find this kid because they probably know the family, right? There's 30 people in this town, whatever. But a kidnapping, for example... Is a huge case. It is manpower intensive. It is time intensive. And the three-man department is just going to get crushed by doing it. And they still have other things they have to be taken care of. So being able to bring those assets to bear and say, okay, this three-man department is now being helped out by the entirety of the FBI. That can be huge. Mm -hmm. So that's where it's kind of a nice thing to have the feds come in. Where it's not a nice thing as we could talk about it, honestly. But U.S. Marshals, what are, what's the difference there? U.S. Marshals, they got their start. Now, they will argue this point, but they got their start um, relatively recently in the last century. They will make the point that they got started a long time ago. We can debate that. <laughs> Neither here there. Their thing is uh, they got a couple of things. They start out sort of protecting the judiciary, so judges, and handling prisoners. So, like, say I go out and I arrest Troy, and I drag him down to the federal courthouse, and he's going to have to go in front of a judge, uh, the nearest neutral and detached federal magistrate as soon as practical. Well, he's my responsibility until I get him in front of that judge for that initial appearance. So, that may take this afternoon, it may be tomorrow, maybe I arrest him the day before Thanksgiving and the judge is out of town and I can't get you in front of a judge until Monday. You're my problem until Monday. Now, I, I will have to make housing arrangements for you by putting you in a local jail where we have rented bed space, et cetera, et cetera. Once the judge says, you can go home, then you leave. But if he says, nope, we're going to hold you over for trial, at that point, you go from my custody. You're no longer an FBI prisoner. Now you are a marshal's service prisoner. And you are the marshal service problem. So they will find you a bed and house you. Now, there's some blurring of those lines sometimes when you get agreements between the organizations. You know, the FBI isn't real big on renting bed space in every jail in the country, but the marshals do. So a lot of times we'll say, hey, look, we're going to put him in a federal bed and the marshal service will pay for it. And they're like, yeah, fine. Then they usually take a stat for the arrest. I'm not supposed to, but they, whatever. Everybody turns a blind eye. Um, so they will handle the prisoners. And once you are convicted, it's their responsibility. Well, during trial, it's their responsibility to get you from jail to the courthouse. So they will do that escort. If your buddies say we're, we grab a member of the Aryan Nations or the Black Lives Matter or somebody else and they're making threats on the judge, they will protect the judge. They'll put a bodyguard, a bunch of bodyguards, a whole protective detail on the judge. They'll make sure this guy gets to and from the courthouse. They guard him in the courthouse. <coughs> um, and they'll get him back to the jail at night. Then once you're convicted, you're going to be the Bureau of Prisons problem. Well, the Marshal Service has to get you from that local jail to the Bureau of Prisons. Bureau of Prisons may say, hey, you know what? You got convicted in Vermont, but we're going to put you in a prison in California. So the Marshal Service goes, we got this. We can't put you on a commercial flight. We're not going to throw you in the back of a van and drive you. So that's where Con Air comes in. You've heard it all about it. It doesn't look anything like the movie. The, yeah, nothing like that movie. <laughs> nothing like that movie. Um, it's much more austere. It's just, it is not the way to travel, believe me. Um, <laughs> 
but they'll put you in con air. And it's basically a big, two big rings that fly around the east half of the United States and the west really? half of the United States. And then they join, I think it's Oklahoma City, maybe? There's, a, there's an airport out in the mid, Midwest where both of the rings intersect. So they'll bring you in, and say you're in Vermont and you're going to Atlanta. Well, they'll drive you over to New Hampshire where you'll catch con air. Then you'll make three or four stops. You know, it'll take you a day or two to get to Atlanta. They'll drop you off. They'll drive you over to the prison, hand you over to BOP. <laughs> and they're done with you. About 25, 30, well, maybe 35 years ago, the FBI started sharing jurisdiction about fugitive work with the Marshal Service. And since that time, it has really eroded on the FBI side. And really, the Marshal Service did the right thing. They, they took over. So fugitive work now is largely, almost entirely, a Marshal Service issue. Um, matter of fact, I write about my top 10 case that I had in there. So we still work, I shouldn't say we, the FBI still works um, <laughs> fugitive cases, but largely it's a Marshal Service issue. And, and fugitive cases were a blast for me. I, I always enjoyed fugitive because it's basically hide-and-go-seek with guns. You know, you're just looking for a bad guy, and he may be anywhere. And I used to refer to Vermont fugitives as boomerangs because they were, you know, Billy Badass up in Vermont. And they'd run and they'd get to New York City or Los Angeles or Miami or Chicago and go, holy crap, these guys are real bad guys. <laughs> I'm going back to Vermont. And they would always come back. <laughs> always, always, always come back. So uh, we'd catch them back in Vermont. Like, dude, you were in California. We know you were in California. Yeah, well, you know, 12-year-old beat me up and took my sneakers. So I came back here. <laughs> um. So the marshals have to do a, a bunch of fugitive work, and they do great stuff there. And they, they work very, very hard with local and state authorities on fugitives. And there's a lot of bleed over between not just federal fugitives, but state fugitives as well. And, uh, and again, same thing. They bring a lot of assets to bear on that problem, and then mm -hmm. they'll, they'll, they'll grab the guy. A lot of times we'll get a warrant called a UFAP warrant, called unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. So let's say, again, Troy commits a crime here. He beats up his girlfriend. And his wife finds out. She calls the police, tells him. Now there's a state warrant for domestic abuse. He hears about that. I'm out. He bolts and goes to Louisiana. Okay. Well, he's still wanted on a local crime, right? Assault, domestic battery, whatever we're going to call it. There's no real federal jurisdiction except that he crossed the state line so that he wouldn't get prosecuted. Right? So he wouldn't get arrested here. He went to Louisiana. So there's a federal law that says if you unlawfully flee to avoid prosecution, that's a federal crime. We'll get a federal warrant for you. And now every fed in the country can look for you because you're a federal fugitive. Again, rather contorted, but it works. And now the marshal service can look for you. And the Huntsville PD doesn't have to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to chase you down. And when you get caught, doesn't have to spend the money to bring you back here. Because the extradition cost to bring you from Louisiana to here might be prohibitive for Huntsville. Not prohibitive for the U.S. Federal Marshal Service. Uh, so they'll grab him. They'll transport him back here at federal cost. Once he's in the local jail here and Huntsville PD's got you, they're going to charge you. They'll drop that federal crime. They'll dismiss the UFAP warrant. And you're no longer a federal problem. Wash your hands of it. Go look at somewhere else. So, you know, that's, a, that's an in-depth look at what they're doing. But basically, they're able to chase fugitives a lot. That's a lot of what they do. Okay. And they do a good job at it. That's a lot more than I knew. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I wonder if the marshals were paying Hollywood in the 90s because Fugitive came out and then Connor didn't come out mm. too many years after that. Yeah. And so they uh, were like in the spotlight, right? Right. They had that, well, they did that. And uh, 
Gosh, they had all kinds of stuff going on. There, there was a reality TV show for a while. For was that for the Marshals? It was, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was cool to be a Marshal there for a great while. Great movie, Fugitive and then yeah. U.S. Marshals. That was, those are great. That's what yeah. Tommy Lee Jones is like, this is my jurisdiction. <laughs> yeah. Get yeah. the FBI out of here. <laughs> got, <laughs> got his Academy Award for that. Oh, he was awesome. Yeah, he got a Best yeah. Actor for that one. Well, let's talk about quotes. You're a man of quotes, <laughs> and you talk yeah. about that in the book. So you readers and listeners can read about what you did it's pretty funny to get out of extra pt mm-hmm. i guess mm-hmm. while you were in defensive tactics school so but one thing and so it was your knowledge of quotes yeah 30 years ago or your lack of knowledge maybe i don't know but anyway it worked out pretty good especially you started out strong and then I you had another another method so i wanted to play a, a game oh, with you i'm gonna concede right now so we'll just do a few okay and i realized that we, I mean, we know these quotes can be from multiple people, but this is who they're most commonly attributed to, I think. Let me just throw out a few and see how you do. How's that? Right, let's, see. let's see how badly I embarrass myself here. And, and I'll give, <laughs> Troy can see if he can get some of these, too. He hasn't seen them, I don't think. No, I haven't seen them. Right, let's start out. Uh, let's see here. I have not yet begun to fight. Oh, that would as be... As the ship was sinking. Yeah, that's uh, John Paul Jones. Okay, here we go. See, starting <laughs> off on a good note here. Okay, uh, let's see. If you, no, even if you're on the right track, you'll get run over if you just sit there. Oh, I've heard that one too. Um, I want to say that's a, somewhere in the last 150 years, but I, it escapes me. You got me on that one. You know that one, Troy? No. Willa Rogers. Ah, okay. There you go. You can't build a reputation on what you are going to do. Oh. That sounds like Patton, but I'm not going to say I know it. I don't know. Obama? Uh, Henry Ford. Henry Ford. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's see here. Um, the antidote for 50 enemies is one friend. Oh, I don't know that one. I've never heard that one, but I like it. Patton. This is old. I don't know. This is Aristotle. Aristotle. That's Aristotle. Oh, yeah. That guy was a quotable Muldoon, too. <laughs> what about Roll Tide? You got that one? <laughs> you just wait. You just wait here. Uh, okay, here's one. You better ground ball me if you're here. I'm really not doing well. Perfection is not attainable, but if we chase perfection, we can catch excellence. This is sports. I was going to say, that sounds like... Uh, Lombardi. You know, I was going to say Bear Bryant. It's Lombardi. Is it Lombardi? Yep. Sorry, I didn't mean no, that. No, I, I, like, I think God, I might know guy. one. I might know no, one. No, thank God. You jump in here. Jeez. <laughs> All right, just a couple more. Oh, please. <laughs> Thinking is the hardest work there is, which is probably the reason why so few engage in it. Um, you know what? My first book, I have a, a thinking quote like that. Uh, some people would rather die than think. In fact, many people do. <laughs> um, I don't know. Edison? It's Henry Ford again. Henry Ford again. Oh. All right. If you believe in yourself and have dedication and pride and never quit, you'll be a winner. The price of victory is high, but so are the rewards. I was going to say, the first half sounds like Whitney Houston uh, before the crack. (laughs) But uh, I don't know. Read that one again. I can quote. I've I've known this since I was about nine years old. If you believe in yourself and have dedication and pride and never quit, you'll be a winner. The price of victory is high, but so are the rewards. Is this a, what's a hint? Is it a politician? No, this is sports. Is it Olympics? Uh-uh. Okay. Uh, Bill Russell. You had it. You were you were there a while ago. I was. It's Bear Bryant. Well, that was, well, he that was me. That was him. Oh, <laughs> did you say Bear Bryant? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is a. I have a a picture on my wall, and my dad had about two of them, and so he had it on his wall. We're all growing up with that quote with a bunch of pictures of Bear. 
What about if you come to a fork in the road, take it? Nah, that's uh, like that's uh, what's his name? That's Yogi, Yogi, Yogi Berra. It's Yogi, yeah. <laughs> it's Yogi Berra. Okay, uh, how about one more? Let's see. How about any fool can criticize, condemn, and complain, and most fools do. Oh, um, Roosevelt, yeah. Eisenhower, Dale Carnegie. Oh yeah. Oh. So anyway, I, I just thought we'd. Throw I gotta, out a few I gotta go back in my book and make sure yeah. I, I write military quotes. <laughs> yeah. So your book, by the way, yeah, every chapter has a quote, and there's a very wide range of like. Here's Barbara Bush. This is funny. I mean, you can learn how to build a bullet, or build a gun, or build a bomb on the internet. Barbara Bush. <laughs> I, think, I think I've got a Marilyn Manson quote in there. You got all kinds of people. You got Jeff Foxworthy. Mm-hmm. If you know all four seasons. Almost winter, winter, still winter, and road construction. You live in New England. <laughs> well, ain't that the? We used to joke that you know we had two seasons in Vermont: winter and August twelfth. Yeah, <laughs> it was just cold. God, <laughs> I remember shoveling snow on the Fourth of July. Really? Oh, well, true story. And Utah it was um, winter and construction. Yeah, those other seasons. <laughs> yep. yep. It's construction. Here's a good one. This is this is funny to me. Congress should get the job done. <laughs> Jack Law. Is that a, <coughs> Jack Lou? Yeah. Jack Lou. Who is that? Do you know? I don't, um, know? I don't know who that is, but. Jack Lou. You know what? If you hadn't asked me, I could have told you. That's okay. It's a, <laughs> so I've got this, this right here. If it was easy, anybody could do it. This yeah. is a book of quotes of, that my mom made all of us kids. Of my, really? Of, like dad's, my, dad's, my dad's a quote guy. And so this was in 2000. She gave it to us for Christmas, and I got all oh, kinds of quotes great. in here. So that's where I pulled these from nice. for your little exercise. But <laughs> yeah, this is like a valuable it failed miserably thing right here. No, 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 that's okay. <laughs> um, so, so your book, uh, why don't you just, why, why did you write it, and why should people read it? Well, they should read it because that's just a nice thing to do, and it's a brilliantly <laughs> written book. And it was, uh, I just found out that it was submitted for a Pulitzer. Pulitzer, pardon me. Great. Which Congrats. shocked me. I was like, what? You know? um, so apparently some people in a position to know think it's worth reading. Uh, why did I write it? Well, it's funny. Um, that, that ties in closely with uh, the title, where I came up with the title. And, uh, you know, when I first got in the FBI, you know, you'd come in and you're just excited, right? I'm like, well, man, I'm in the FBI. I never thought I'd be in the FBI. This is great. They hired grownups and they hired me. How the hell did this happen? Um, and so you hit the ground and you're just like, man, I am going to just do great things, put bad people in bad places. It's going to be awesome. And you do that. I mean, you don't work the barking dog calls. You don't work the, uh, you know, the drunk husband coming home at two in the morning, you know, busting in the front door. Uh, and it's important that, that those things do get worked. But the FBI works just sort of a different type of crime. And so I, you know, you really felt like you were making a difference, particularly because I spent my first decade in Vermont, where, you know, two kilos of coke comes into Vermont, that's a big deal. I mean, everybody that's into coke is getting some blow on that. Two keys comes into Miami, and nobody even gets out of bed. So you really felt like you were having an impact. But it doesn't take long when you're working in any bureaucracy, and you gentlemen have both had this experience where you're working in a bureaucracy, you see problems, you see the fix. And then you spend a year, two, five, beating your head against a wall trying to fix that problem. And you're like, look, I'm not trying to cause a problem here. And suddenly you're being treated like you are trying to cause yeah. a problem. Mm-hmm. You're like, I'm just trying to fix a problem. And it's an obvious problem. And we all know it's a problem. I know it's a problem. You know it's a problem. The boss knows it's a problem. His boss knows it's a problem. Here's the solution. But there are all these bureaucratic roadblocks and this and that. 
And the FBI has a, a saying that, uh, you know, don't embarrass the Bureau is one of them. Um, but there's also one that says, uh, you know, we're keeping the myth alive, right? What are we doing here? We're keeping the myth of the FBI G-man from the 50s and the 40s and the 60s. We're keeping it alive. And uh, the reputation of the FBI does help a lot. It's surprising to me. I mean, uh, I ran into people in Afghanistan. You know, if you told them FBI, they'd be like, they didn't speak a word of English, but they heard FBI. And they were like, oh, yeah, I've heard of those guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. The guy's living in a mud hut up on a mountain his whole life. And he's like, oh, yeah, where did you? <laughs> but here in the States, a lot of times you tell people, look, I need to talk to you. I ain't say, bah, 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 bah. Well, I'm the FBI. You need to sit down. We need to talk. Oh, hell. Now, if I also had the opposite, you know, conversation where I walked in, <laughs> you know, maybe had a couple of really bad dudes that had done 20, 25 years in Attica and then got out and they were into a whole different type of crime and they got caught by the locals on a federal warrant. I walked in to pick them up and they were calm and as soon as they heard the FBI was here, man, they both came flying off their benches and F this and F that and they're, you know, <laughs> like, fellas, are we not going to be friends? I mean, <laughs> is this going to be ugly? Uh, so having that reputation out there was handy. But I'm like, we have problems that we could fix and we, we should fix and some of them are easy fixes and some of them certainly are not easy fixes. But it's not easy to be in the FBI. It's not easy to do what we do. The difficulty of the task shouldn't be a bar to the attempt, right? If, if this is a hard thing to do, well, let's do it. If it needs to be done, let's do it. And it wouldn't get done. And it was very frustrating to me. So within a few years of coming on the Bureau, I started telling people, I said, someday I'm writing my memoirs. Mm -hmm. I'm, writing, I'm gonna call it Painting Over Rust. Because we see that there's rust on this piece of metal and we're not cleaning the rust off, we're just painting over it so it looks pretty. Mm -hmm. So that we're preserving the myth. We're keeping the myth alive. The, my favorite one was the FBI computer systems. Mm. They did an episode of, uh, oh, what was that? The Office or something? <laughs> Not The Office. Uh, it was The West Wing. Oh. All right, you remember that one back yeah. in the day? Yeah. It was uh, Rob Lowe and mm -hmm. you know, whoever else was in there. And they did an episode. It started out with a banner across the bottom that said, Burlington, Vermont, FBI, which is where I worked. <laughs> And they've got this big etched glass FBI seal, you know, as you walk in, yeah. there's all these cool computers and, and everybody that worked there was a diverse selection of gender and race and everybody was 28 and beautiful. And, and I'm looking at this going, wow, I want to work there because the office I work in is six middle-aged white dudes um, and it's on the sixth floor of a federal building that looks like it was built in the Eisenhower era and it's baby puke yellow and it's just nasty. Um, <laughs> and you're running Windows 3.1. And I'm running Windows 3.1 <laughs> in you know 2002, and uh, so that's the reputation that was out there in our computers. You know, you watch people on these TV shows. Let me just pull up this, you know, a video from a gas station camera in Salt yeah. Lake City. Zoom in on that. That was made ten minutes ago, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, do you know how many federal laws you just violated? And, and if you could do that, which you can't, and I'm like, wow, I want to work for that guy. So that's the FBI I want to be in. So, you know, there's that kind of thing going on. Management was another big one. Um, and I talk about that quite a bit in my book. Is just, we in the FBI do a lot of training for local, state, and federal partners, managers. We run a thing called the National Academy, which I did, Class 269, um, where we teach management to other organizations. But we require zero training for our own managers. We don't train them. 
and it's just mind-boggling to me. And anybody who's been in the military will have the same experience that I had. You don't go anywhere and do anything in the military in terms of a promotion without going through a leadership school. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't in the Army, you don't in the Marine Corps. You can ask Rich the next time you have him on here. Anybody you know that's in the Air Force will tell you the same thing. It's always get a promotion, go to a school. Get a promotion, go to a school. Get a promotion, go to a school. Officer or enlisted, period. Yeah. But we don't do it in the Bureau. And so we end up with these managers that because of the system they're in, they're very good at playing the system they're in, but the system they're in doesn't require them mm. to do any management training. And I think that's a huge shortfall in the FBI, and it's something that we could fix. Therefore, we should fix, but we don't fix. And my father-in-law is a retired FBI agent. So he came in 83. So I came in in 97. So our, our careers overlapped a bit before he retired. I didn't know him, but he says the same thing from the 80s, that managers were just not good leaders in the FBI in 1985. And he knew a bunch of agents, obviously, when he was a two- or three-year agent that had come in in the 60s. And they said the same thing about bosses back then. So in living memory, we've never had a tradition of strong leadership in the FBI. Occasionally, we run into good managers. And I think one or two times in my career, I can say I honestly ran into good leaders in the FBI. In a 20-year career, once or twice? Yeah, sad. 12 years in the Army, I couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting a good leader. At all levels, all ranks. Couldn't find him in the FBI. And if you read my uh, <laughs> my reviews on Amazon, the one bad one I've got is like, oh, he beats up the managers. But I think he was the problem. Yeah, I'm right. like, well, maybe. <laughs> maybe I was. I, I don't. Yeah, but you're also it's one of the first to say, hey, I, you know, ask my ex-wife. You know, I, I, I probably screwed that up or something. Yeah. I mean, you recognize I that try sometimes. to. I try to be as, as honest and upfront as I can in the book about these things mm-hmm. when I talk about them. And it just, and even if I were the complete train wreck of an agent, it doesn't change the fact that we need to do a better job of selecting and training our managers and requiring a certain level of leadership from them. Yeah. And if you don't believe me, look at our headlines for the last five years. I mean, no, it doesn't help that we've had a lot of people in the White House throwing rocks at the FBI. I get that. But it doesn't change the fact that a lot of the stuff we see that keeps making the papers stems ultimately from bad leadership or bad selection of people that get into leadership positions. Well, will you compare, um, is it Mueller or Mueller? Uh, Mueller. Will you compare Mueller to his predecessor? You do a great job in the book, and and most people aren't going to know this, but I believe most people, they know him Mm -hmm. because he he was sworn in right before 9-11, correct? A week. And his predecessor is Free or Freya? Free. Free, okay. I was not familiar with him. So Mueller's the first one I ever really heard of or cared about. What was the difference there? Oh, leadership. 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 Absolutely. Leadership. One was a leader, the other was a manager. Um, Louis Free, you know, I will also say about Louis Free, in, in the interest of full disclosure, he was the director, I, my first director. I was very taken with him coming right out of the Army because he showed up. He came to our classes and he talked to us. He went out for a run with us. And coming out of the Army, that's a big deal, right? I mean, leaders run with their troops. He came out and ran three miles with us. And at a good pace. I mean, considering he was... At that point, what, late 40s, early 50s? And we're all 30 years old going to PT every day, <laughs> and he's out there running. I mean, he wasn't smoking us, but he wasn't dragging ass either. So, I mean, he was doing eight, nine-minute miles for three miles. Pretty good at his age. Better than I can do now, I'll tell you that much. Um, but he showed up. He had us, as you'll see in the book, or you probably saw in the book, he had us up to his office before we graduated. He talked to us about ethics. He set the priorities 
to us initially coming in the bureau. He showed up to our graduation. Mm -hmm. He shook every agent's hand. He stood there and took pictures with every agent, took two pictures with every agent, one with the agent, and then one with anyone the agent wanted to bring on stage. Mm. So in my case, I brought up, you know, like my foster brother and my wife and my six-year-old daughter. Some people, 25 family members up on that stage with them because this was a big deal. This was, you know, a kid that grew up in the hood and got out. We had one guy in my class that swam out of Cuba, right? Mm. (laughs) Swam into Guantanamo Bay and had gone from that to the FBI. Mm. Didn't have a whole lot of family with him, go figure. But Free shook everybody's hand. And then we had Director Mueller. And Director Mueller was a different guy, just a different guy. Now, he'd had leadership training as a Marine, right? He served in, in Vietnam as a Marine lieutenant. Said publicly that, you know, his greatest military, his greatest governmental service was as a lieutenant in the FBI. A little hurtful for us, in, or as a, a lieutenant, lieutenant in the Marine Corps. <laughs> a little hurtful for us in the FBI. Uh, but that was, you know, ostensibly he got the same leadership training that every other Marine in Vietnam got, plus the experience. But he didn't translate, in my mind, he didn't translate that experience into his leadership role as the director of the FBI. And I do talk about in the book where one guy that I knew that worked very closely with him for years said that if he could have come up his private elevator, which he had, the director of the FBI, right to the seventh floor, um, could have come in his uh, private elevator, walked directly to his office, closed the door, worked for 8, 10, 12 hours, opened the door, walked out, got in the elevator, gone home, he'd have been happy as a clam. Hmm. Which is great, but that's not the job. The director of the FBI you're the public face of the FBI, like it or not. That's your gig. And you as the director are not successful. No leader is successful at any level without the success of their subordinates, yeah. period. I don't care if you are a journeyman plumber you're working on a mall <laughs> construction. <laughs> you are not successful if you're, or if you're the master plumber in charge of that build. If those journeymen working for you aren't doing their jobs and not being successful, you're going to fail all day, every day. It's true of any profession you want to name. If the guy in charge isn't the guy that's getting work done by the sweat of his brow, he's not getting his knuckles busted turning a wrench. Directed the FBI, same thing. So your job is to get out there, in my mind, get out there and encourage people that are below you and assuage the issues of the people above you. You know, you're really a feces screen, right? You keep the, <laughs> keep the people above from crapping on the people below you and they keep the people from below you. Descript- I've heard it described by the ways, but never that way, a feces screen. Right. <laughs> if we weren't doing this, I'd probably use stronger language. But um, I'm going to add that to my, <laughs> my daily. Yeah, and you don't want the people below you throwing feces and hitting the people above you, right? Yeah. So it stops at you. And uh, he didn't do that. That wasn't his thing. And, you know, I worked at the academy teaching firearms for about five years. So I went to a lot of graduations during that time. And he would show up sometimes, wouldn't show up other times. Never really gave a, a reason that I heard. But in fairness, I wasn't in, a, in the chain of command to have always heard why he wasn't there. But you just assume he's the director of the FBI. He's a busy guy, right? Yeah. 40, 35, 40,000 people working for him. He's got things to do. But when he did show up, he just always looked like he'd rather be somewhere else. He looked like he was sitting up there being forced to drink a jar of pickle juice and he didn't like pickles. Mm. You know, and he had this rumpled suit. He always had a white shirt, very crisp white shirt. His suits were never that great. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a bit of a sartorial snob. So and I'm, he was a yeller, right? He liked to yell. Yeah, he, uh, my father-in-law had to brief him right after 9-11 because my father-in-law was there at headquarters on 9-11 and was one of the people that responded over to the Pentagon um, just because it was all hands-on-deck thing. 
but ended up having to give him a briefing on some aspect of the the response that day a few days later. And he just was completely checked out of my father. Just wasn't paying any attention to this hmm. peon GS14 that was talking to him. And I was in meetings with people that were just like, well, it's so much better not getting screamed at, you know. And he's not just yelling at, at brick agents, little guys like me. He's yelling at people who have, were senior executive management in the FBI, screaming at them, belittling them. I mean, to, the, to the point where, you know, there's not a lot of people in that room. And the word's getting out, right? So there's only yeah. so many witnesses. And if we're hearing about it outside that room, well, that means people are talking, right? They're talking to their buddies who are talking to their buddies, and the word's getting out now. To some extent, you can say, okay, maybe that's just a game of telephone where, you know, <laughs> he says one thing and by the time it gets to me, it's, you know, something different. Possibly. But he was in charge for something like 13 years. And we heard that the whole 13 years. So, you know, that inner circle that ostensibly was getting yelled at changed. Those people moved on, retired, whatever. And new people came in. And the word kept coming out. You know, he's a screamer, he's a yeller. Yeah. So... You know, he got the name Bobby Three Sticks early on. Uh, and it was not, you know, meant as a you know, flattering uh, moniker. And it was his moniker till the day he went. What about, were you were you prepared to take everyone's guns if, if someone else had, if Hillary had been elected oh, president? <coughs> that's a great question. Um, you know, that's... You would have followed through on that, right? <laughs> Stop. Um, it's funny that you slip it in so, so subtly, such a hot button issue. Uh, well, you, you guys are ready to just go ahead and violate the constitution, right? That was no big deal. Uh, it's funny that you say that because one of my best friends in the bureau is Stuart that I talk about here in the book. And he and I ended up at this, not just in the same division with Charlotte division before I retired, we ended up on the same squad. Mm. And like me, he's married to a, a female agent and, uh, Unlike me, his wasn't in the skiff with us. He and I were on a counterterrorism squad. My wife was in the this secure communication information facility, uh, but she was overworking counterintelligence, chasing spooks. He and I had been friends since before I was in the Bureau. We'd been friends for 20-plus years by the time I got here, and uh, another gun guy, just like me, both big into guns, hmm. shooters. I was always the go-to guy in my office if you had a gun question, if you wanted to talk rifle twist rates or you wanted to talk scopes or you wanted to talk you know any kind of optics questions leather questions knife questions i was that dork swat guys are coming to me asking me problems okay atf used to call me up and ask me stuff because i'm just that guy right i mean he's just into being that guy well if i had a question that i couldn't figure out i'd call him i'd call Stuart. uh and it's important to say Stuart's not his real name so Stuart and i end up on the same squad and now hillary's running and trump's running and you know Beto's coming out saying, we're going to take your ARs. We're coming to get them. And so naturally we're like, well, if they, if that order comes down from DOJ, it's going to come, it's going to land on us. I mean, we're going to be, I mean, everybody's going to have to go do this because you're talking about literally what, almost 400 million guns, best guess in this country. Mm. <laughs> there's just, there's, you know, what, 120,000 federal agents, maybe the math doesn't work out in our favor. So you say, okay, Charlotte division, you're going to start. Seizing guns. Come on. Come on. I mean, maybe you can get away with that in Boston. Maybe. <laughs> I doubt it, mm -hmm. but okay. But you're going to send a bunch of agents up into the hills of western North Carolina, <laughs> eastern Tennessee, eastern Kentucky. Thank you. <laughs> That's exactly what I said. I'm like, these people have backhoes, guns, 
and the ability to keep a secret. And moonshine. And moonshine. I said, so you want me to go up there and tell them boys and them hollers, hey, cough them up? <laughs> I said, I ain't got, the revenue are going to die. I said, how many of us are going to have to die before you decide, well, maybe this isn't a good idea? I said, that's if you can get past the inevitable, never-ending legal challenges to that yeah, you know, gross yeah. overstep. And I'm like, and oh, by the way, on top of that, no, I'm not going to do that. You can't make me do that. You know, what do you, the worst thing you can do is order me to do it and then fire me for not doing it. Okay. So for me, and you know, and Stuart was even more vehement about it. <laughs> he was like, F this, F that. I'm not, I, don't. <laughs> um, I agreed with him. I just wasn't as vehement about it. You know, there are lines. You know, there are always lines. And sometimes those lines are hard to see, right? I mean, if you think about, I hate these Nazi Germany comparisons, but I'm going to make one. Everything the Nazis did was legal under the German laws. They just changed the laws and made them legal, right? Well, we don't. We want to round up the Jews. Change the laws. They didn't just go out and round up Jews. They made them illegal, and then they rounded them up, right? And they slowly moved that line, and the law-abiding citizens kept on following. And it's all you know. People say, "Well, you shouldn't. You should just draw that line. You shouldn't do that." Well, okay. With eighty years of hindsight, it's easy to say yeah. that. But now, put yourself in the moment. They come down and they say, "Okay, you got 15, 16 years on the job. You get a pension in four years." We want you to go out and seize all the handguns yeah. on this two square block, or we're going to fire you. Well, yeah, for you and me and Troy sitting here talking about this, clearly that's a violation. Clearly that's non-supportable legally. Well, now let's say Congress passes a law says all handguns are illegal, period. Round them up, turn them in. If you don't turn them in by this date, you're a felon, and you're subject to seizure and criminal sanction and civil sanction. Okay. Well, now I'm being told to enforce a federal law that I disagree with, but Congress has made legal. Am I, and, oh, by the way, the penalty for not doing it is I'm not going to prison, but I'm going to have to be, you know, I'm almost 50 years old now. I've got to find another job. i got to feed my kids. i got to find my wife. I, yeah. I've almost got a pension. I'm not saying these things trump that moral responsibility. What I am saying is it's a factor. And now you got to think. you got to weigh. you got to make a decision. It's not as clear-cut as... I'm not going to put that Jew on a train to send him to Auschwitz. You know, that's, that's pretty clear cut. No, we're clearly not going to do that because with hindsight, we know what happens. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when people jump up and down and go, oh, that's, it shouldn't do this, it shouldn't do that. I'm like, well, okay. You know, I may agree with you in, in theory, but we don't live in theory, right? We live in reality and we have to make these decisions based on these realities. I notice a lot of people that, will say, well, the feds should do this or shouldn't do that. And they're criminals if they do this. And criminals if they don't do that aren't feds. You know, they're not people who are making these decisions from within that sort of world. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's the same thing. You see these, these videos where people are going out now and they're going to these, you know, let them in protests, right? Where people are saying <laughs> we should let, you know, let down with the borders, let all yeah. these people in. And then they say, okay, great. Hey, I got three illegal aliens that are right here. They need a place to stay. Can they stay at your house? No way. And they lose their mind, right? Oh my God, no. And you see these all over YouTube. They're hysterical because this guy's you know, got his big sign and all of a sudden the reality hits him. And, you know, I saw one where he's like, yeah, and and this guy, he takes medication twice a day, so you're going to have to help him with that. And this guy's really got to use the bathroom, so let me get him in your house real quick. And the guy's like, no, 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 I don't, I don't have space. I don't have you. Um, all of a sudden that reality hits you, right? So I'm, like, before we start throwing rocks at people for making the decision they make, you know, let's try to put ourselves in that position. And I had to do that to myself when I saw those FBI agents take a knee several years ago in D.C. during the Black Lives Matter protests. You remember that? And they were, you know, you know, take a knee, take a knee. And the FBI agents took a knee. And I lost my mind. Uh-huh. I was just like, wow. You know, I just, you know, 
you can't be doing that. And I came up with all these good reasons why you wouldn't do that. Well, one of the reasons that I didn't come up with was, well, there's 10,000 of them. There's eight of you. Yeah. And if they charge you and want to start beating you because you won't take a knee, your only defense is to start shooting them. So are you willing to kill people and that optic and live through that optic because you don't think it's right to take a knee? Mm -hmm. Okay. And the answer that's good for me might not be the answer that's good for Troy. Might not be an answer that's good for you. We may have differences of opinion and they may all come from a good place. Right? I mean, I didn't join the FBI so that I could shoot protesters, whatever they're protesting. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, I'll shoot a bad guy that's trying to hurt somebody, whatever their issue is. If they're trying to hurt some innocent person, no problem. I'll smoke it. But just because you have a legitimate protest that turns sideways, you know, or I could defuse the whole thing by taking a knee. I don't know. That's, that's uh, tough, man. Yeah, it's a hard call. And, and that's sort of the... Goes back to the situational thing you talked about at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, you really have to put yourselves in these positions and think it out. And boy, am I just me or is there just a real dearth of people putting in the effort and to think? You mm-hmm. see so many people, oh, yeah. so many people these days just regurgitating uh, sound bites. Or, you know, I'm a member of this group, whatever that group is. I don't care what group it is. And this is what I've been told that I have to think for this group. So that's what I think. Well, now you've advocated your responsibility in my mind to critically think about what you're doing. Right. I mean, we just, we just adopt these positions, whatever they are, and we don't put thought into them. And so now we're not talking to each other. We're talking past each other. Yeah. And we're defining people way too much by politics. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember you used to vote and then go on about your life. Yeah. Now it's like, it's hatred now. Right? Oh, you wore a red hat. I've got to beat you to a pulp. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're wearing a BLM shirt. I got to beat you to a pulp. You voted for Hillary. You voted for Trump. You know, now we're now I have suddenly you've become a stereotype of a Trump voter. Yeah. Or you become a stereotype of a Hillary voter. Instead of, no, oh, I just happen to agree with these portions of that person's platform. Yeah, oh. look at me. I'm a, I'm a white guy from the South. What do you think people think? Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, oh, it drives my wife nuts when people interpret her Southern accent. Which she has very little left as a sign of her level of intellect. Mm. Oh my God, you want to piss her off? <laughs> you know, and I'm from California, so the whole north south thing is like right past me. I don't know. Um, so half the time I'm being called a, a Yankee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, you know, I'm from San Diego. That's further south than we are right here. You've got a map? I can it's show you. The country. <laughs> it is these days. But uh, yeah, as soon as somebody makes an assumption on her based on her gender or her accent, KD bar the door. It is on, you know, (laughs) there is a buttload of stuff that I would love to talk to you about. Uh, in closing though, what do you want to say that we haven't covered? Uh, You know what? I think pay attention and talk to people is really, I think what it comes down to. You can talk your way out of a lot of problems. If you're willing to just listen and hear, you know, look for those narrative overlaps, look for places where your story overlaps with that other person's story. Instead of looking for places where, there's conflict between your perspective mm-hmm. and their perspective. Mm-hmm. I think that would solve an awful lot of issues. That and, and pay attention. You know, I used to say that if you wanted to commit crimes, you could work alone, keep your mouth shut, and wear gloves, and you'd probably almost never get caught, right? Because <laughs> those are the people we catch, the guys that leave fingerprints, the people that talk too much, the people that have a partner, and we catch the partner, and the partner rolls. Mm-hmm. Well, the same thing is true with interpersonal disagreements these days, which I, I just find are getting more and more common. 
you know, rather than shouting at one another, let's talk to one another. Because as soon as you start shouting, well, pretty soon it's real easy to start throwing rocks. And then once violence breaks out, then we have yeah. a, a real problem. And we're seeing it more and more. So pay attention to what's going on around you. It solves a lot of your problems. Talk to people instead of shouting at people. Yeah, appreciate it. You got to watch your e- It requires an ego check sometimes, too. It, it does. It does. You got to check that ego. I w- I'm going to put links to the Horace Group, which Thank is you, your sir. company. Yes, uh, you, you do some, I mean, I wanted to talk to you about that, about you know the executive protection and, mm-hmm. and, and then about edged weapons, about IDPA matches and, you know, all and instruct, uh, you're an instruct, firearms instructor. Yep. Anyway, there's a, there, you've got a long list of things and Troy's interviewing you in two days. So who knows? He's got a lot of, a lot of options too. Excellent. Well, I'm happy to talk to you about any of these things anytime you want to, sir. Yeah. Anything, Troy? Now I'll wait for Wednesday. <laughs> I will say this. You got to pay attention. Your father, your father-in-law, mm-hmm. if you retire, if you started in the government before January 1, 1984, you get the Cadillac retirement plan. Oh, yeah. And he's got it. Make no mistake. So, and he looks at me and laughs. Anytime and laughs I hear 83, laughs. I'm like, oh, they got it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they oh, got yeah. it. Yeah. Now, he doesn't get Social Security, though, because no, he, he, he didn't pay into Social Security. Okay. And that's a sacrifice he's willing to make because... <laughs> He retired out of, I don't know, something like 75, 80% of his base pay. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And he just giggles the whole time as he's oh. playing golf from his house. That's that's awesome. on the first tee of a golf course. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly appreciate your service to our country in the Army. It's my pleasure. And sir. as a special agent in the FBI, I got, I got a little something for you oh, here. thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Oh, I love these things. I've got a bunch of them. So I've been able to give oh, my wow. guest here in person a, a, a coin when they when they come here. And I, I would like to express my condolences for the loss of your brother. I know it's been a while, but still. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. He went down swinging, and uh, he should be admired for that. He did. I appreciate that. And so shout out to your friend, Rich Brown. You've been on American Warrior <laughs> show like like 45 times or something. <laughs> so I hope that there's some content here that that those faithful listeners haven't heard. I hope they've they've heard some new stuff here and – yeah, buy the book. It, it is a great book. And I haven't left a review on Amazon yet, but I will because I, I firmly believe in leaving reviews. I appreciate sure. that. I do appreciate that. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you.